Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Inside the Sound of Fear. There have been widespread reports in the modern civilized world of a persistent, invasive, low-frequency acoustic phenomenon known as the hum. The noise peaks between 30 and 40 hertz and is not audible to all people. Different causes have been attributed to the hum, including local mechanical sources and manifestations of tinnitus or other psychological or biological auditory effects. And now, please enjoy Farewell Concert. Statement of Mr. David Lee, July 30th, 4.30 p.m., Interviewed by Detective Brianna Brishi. I know you're upset, Mr. Lee. It's understandable. We'd still like your comprehensive statement, not only what you witnessed the afternoon of June 23rd. All right. I guess this is my punishment, right? Punishment? Yeah, for whatever part I played and what went down. And what part is that, Mr. Lee? Like I said, I left my laptop unguarded when I went to the bathroom that time of practice. She must have captured a copy of my research on the hum when I was out of the room. She knew I was writing a paper on it. And for the record, can you explain in your own words what the hum is? Wait, you guys are interested in my research now? Did you, did you find something? Please explain the hum, Mr. Lee. The hum is ambient sound. It can be heard all over the industrialized world. Though not everybody hears it, only certain people. There's a bunch of research done on it by the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. Matter of fact, they're researching it right now, off the coast. I was hoping my paper on it would get me a student membership in the IEEE. What you suggested in your previous interview was that the song you were playing specifically targeted the hum's frequency. Amplitude. Targeted the hum's amplitude to effectively suppress it? Exactly. The song's sound wave signature was the same amplitude as the hum, but with an inverted phase. It's called destructive interference. We may need to get back to the specifics of that later. You're a physics student, correct? Yeah, specifically bioacoustics. And bioacoustics is... Basically, it's the study of how living organisms produce and relate to sound. Thank you. I believe your insight into this area of physics could be pertinent to the case. Case? The events of June 23rd? Yeah, but case? I mean, do you think there's anything to, you know, solve? It's over. Case fucking closed, isn't it? I think we should return to your statement, Mr. Lee. Something you say might help us to figure out what went wrong that afternoon, so we can prevent it from ever happening again. That's something you want, isn't it? Yes. Okay, good. Please continue. Well, active noise control is one thing. I don't know what fucking arrangement of notes or chords caused the gate to open and that that slow stepper to appear. We'll get back to that. You previously said Miss Ishimaru never included her full vocal performance of the song at the rehearsals. That afternoon was the first time you heard the complete version, correct? You don't want to recreate it, do you? We do not. To be honest, even if it could be recreated, I don't think it would be dangerous without Reiko. I mean, Miss Ishimaru. Everyone relates to the sound around them differently, Detective Burb. It's pronounced Barishi. Barishi. Well, everyone's different when it comes to sound, even the ambiences that are around us all the time. Some people, like, like dowsers, ever heard of them? Dowsers? Yes. So they use a tree branch like an antenna to find whatever sound field accompanies underground water deposits. Reiko had that, and a whole lot more. She had the ability to detect audio way beyond the typical human range. And what did she use for an antenna? I think she was the antenna. Go on. It wasn't only her ability to hear into ultra and infrasonic spectra. 
She had this way of knowing what we were thinking. The band, I mean. Single bullet theory. Right. What is the band name a reference to? The Kennedy assassination. Kind of a conspiracy buff. Anyways, current research says one in seven people have the ability to be an effective dowser, though most of them go through their whole lives not knowing it. Reiko was one in a million. There are over seven billion people on Earth, Mr. Lee. Are you implying that there could be 7,000 people who possess her ability? Look, man, I'm not trying to prove anything. Far as I know, she was unique. My fault. I think we're getting into the weeds of what-ifs now. Let's get back to your statement. Tell me about the other band members and when you met Mrs. Ishimaru. Right. So it was last year when James, Omar, Nathan, and I formed the band. I think it was a week or two after the campus shootings. That put things into perspective. It was when I stopped taking for granted I would get to grow old. A disease, accident, or gun-toting maniac could take us out at any time, you know. We formed a band so we could, I don't know, do something immediate and meaningful, and because we love music. Tell me more about the others. Did you meet in music class? I met James at a lecture on spectrogram studies, you know, comparing the audio signal of a baby's cry or a mother's coo to soothe the baby across different world cultures. James was into linguistics, and he knew how to play the drums. Interesting. James and I considered music only a hobby, though. Omar was the only music major. He took it seriously, except for the responsibility part. You know, credit cards always maxed out, no plan B in case his music career tanked. Shit like that. His dad was, is, pretty rich. Owns a chain of tire stores. Maybe that had something to do with it. Omar's single-mindedness, I mean. Mr. Pascal, Omar, bought most of the band's equipment, didn't he? Did he buy Reiko's? He tried. He bought stuff for James and Nathan and himself. Reiko had her own shit, and he didn't buy anything for me either. I had my own workstation for at least five years, and I bought my amp with the money I earned working at the bookstore on weekends. Would you say Omar was the band leader? Yeah, he wanted to be. Maybe he was, until Reiko showed up. What about the other members? What were they like? Nathan would probably have been happy playing Magic the Gathering after school if the rest of us had been into that. Since we were into music, he got into music too. He played bass. The band played a couple of local shows, and you were even featured on a podcast before Reiko joined, right? <laughs> yeah. My ex hosted a podcast featuring local synthwave bands. She told me she'd play us if we ever got her some material. So we got our shit together and made an EP. Three tracks. Section 203, Lunar Gento, and Radical Transparency. In those days, we mostly played stuff inspired by 80s movie soundtracks. You know, John Carpenter, Ritz, Mortelani, Goblin. It went well with the 80s film score covers we did. We got some good PR from the podcast, yeah. We were still playing for a tiny audience, though. We wanted more fans. We didn't uh, blow up until Reiko became our front woman. Her voice, her samples, her suggestions. We switched to hip-hop beats. We became a witch house band. Witch house is a genre? It's a subgenre of electronic music. You know, spooky sounds, lots of reverb, furniture moving bass. Sounds like what my daughter listens to. Oh yeah? So what happened to the dynamic of the band when Reiko joined? We were in our little practice space. That's the storage facility on 17th and Pico? Right. Anyways, James just showed up with her one day. She claimed to not speak English. James knew some Japanese and explained Reiko was an exchange student from Hokkaido. Some kind of full-ride music scholarship. He said she wanted to jam, so we let her sing backup vocals for one track. She had a great voice. Then we let her load up some experimental shit. A song she had recorded on her laptop. It was rough and kind of rubbed me in the wrong way. Kind of like the first time I had heard Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. I had almost no classical music training myself at that point. Though, I was certain that for the first time I had heard those harmonies. She was a prodigy. A composer of rare genius. Then she sang live over the music. It wasn't Japanese or English. It was a language she had created that made the most of her vocal range. It was stunning. 
Gorgeous. Eerie. You heard our stuff. Well, none of us were thinking of anything else when that girl sang. The alienness of it suited us fine. Elizabeth Fraser of the Cocteau Twins had done something similar, and Reiko's voice fit our style. Everything clicked into place. That was the point you decided you wanted her in the band? Right. Omar and I had our little squabbles before Reiko showed up. Mostly about him ordering everyone around. After all, it was about writing music around that awesome voice of hers. I'd been playing with those guys for months and thought I had a pretty good gauge on her strengths. She recognized all the potential aspects of the band immediately and reassembled us into a better version of ourselves. And live? Man, oh man. For someone that small, she had incredible stage presence. After our first performance with her up front, the gigs and merch opportunities started to roll in. You played Das Bunker in Mid-Wilshire and The Mint in Beverlywood in May, the month prior to the Witch House Solstice Festival. There was no evidence of violence or unexplained phenomena then. Certainly nothing like what happened at the festival. Right. Because the festival was the first time we ever played that song. Chimera. I see. Mr. Lee, before you describe what happened at the festival on June 23rd, did you or the other band members ever have any confrontations with Reiko prior to the show? Anything to indicate she intended harm or uh, get back at you somehow? Well, she was moody, I mean. So was Omar. So am I, if I'm honest. So her behavior didn't seem all that strange to the rest of us. There were a couple of things that threw me for a loop, though. Like what? Please try to be thorough. Well, one night after our third or fourth practice with Reiko, we asked her to join us for eats at the Mexican place across the street. While we were waiting for our food and beers to show up, I asked Reiko how she had come up with her vocal style. She was hunched over her phone like some weird old woman. She put the phone down and I'll never forget the look on her face. Her expression was angry, distressed, unbearable. She didn't say a word to me or James, only stared at me until I looked away. I ate my tacos without saying much else, aware of a growing, empty feeling inside that I had scared her off, and this would be the last time any of us saw her. We'd go back to playing 80s movie soundtracks and fade into obscurity. The other guys were staring daggers at me. Then she reached across the table, tugged on the sleeve of my hoodie, and said, I'll stay. When I looked at her face, she was her shy, opaque self again. I thought her odd behavior could be written off to anxiety. I mean, she was in a foreign country, probably struggling with money, a genius in a world that could never understand her. I had anxiety myself without the burden of those things. Anyways, after that, she was our undisputed frontwoman. She wrote all the songs and rarely asked for our input, even James's. My friendship with her didn't grow, though her music still fascinated me. We sounded amazing and I wanted more. Hmm, what else? You said a couple of things. Yeah, right before the Solstice Festival gig at practice, I gently asked Reiko what had inspired her to create the vocal melody for Chimera. Her face took on that stony cast once more. I thought about asking James to translate in case she had misinterpreted what I had asked. Even played the melody to my best recollection on my workstation. The moment she recognized it, her bony arm shot out and grasped my wrist with her hard little fingers. She shook her head, no, and placed a finger to her lips to silence me, then listened intently to the quiet until she was satisfied the reverb had stopped. I tried explaining I only wanted to communicate with her on a musical level, my student to her teacher, so I could learn more about her method. She started shoving her things in that backpack she had that was covered with art from that anime TV series Berserk, like she was storming out. James leapt to her defense. The two of them faced Nathan, Omar, and I. I apologized and offered her my hand in friendship. She shook it, her face softened, and she embraced me tightly, like a long-lost sibling. Instead of patting my back or resting her palm on it, she drew invisible characters on it with her finger, like she was tracing a word on me or something. The embrace went on a little too long, though I was relieved she hadn't left. I forgave her, of course. I resolved to stop making assumptions when it came to Reiko. I should be there to help her, rather than expect help from her. Okay, was there anything else? 
No, that was it. That was the night before the show. All right. Please walk me through the afternoon of the band's performance at the Witch House Solstice. You arrived at the event space at what time? Around 4 p.m. That's when we did the sound check. And when did you start your set? Six, two hours before sunset. Did you notice anything unusual about the venue before the performance? Only how well organized and beautiful it was. We never played outdoors. I remember the field was across the street from an industrial plant where they had painted a beautiful mural with whales and dolphins and shit. From the sloping hill where the audience was, you could see beyond that building, to the deep blue of the true sea glittering in the late afternoon sun. Did you notice anything unusual about the stage? Not really. The backstage ramps and stairs connected to a short paved path that snaked around the grass to a tiny parking lot for event staff and performers. There was plenty of power on tap too. The venue was capable of handling far heavier a load per plug than we needed. The juice ran through thick boot-proof black and orange-colored extension cord bundles that connected to a power source and event parking. Management had even set up a trio of backup generators behind the stage ready to kick in in case the primary source failed. The audience would be scattered on the grass between the stage and the main parking lot. Enough space for three or four hundred people to set up picnics, dance, or whatever. Did you notice anything unusual about the audience, event management, or anyone working for the festival? I liked David and his assistant Whitney. They were managing the event. Out in the audience were a few familiar faces. Mid-length hair guy who reminded me of Bill and Ted's era Keanu Reeves. The lean girl with the shaved head. The tall guy with the short, touchy-feely girlfriend. How about the other bands? We were the opener. The second band, Low Profile, were waiting backstage. They were friends of the main act, who hadn't shown yet. Fear Boys with Bugs. I've heard of them. Yeah, they were in Entertainment Weekly a lot. They're also pretty well-known TV stars. So the crowd take their seats on the grass, and you're ready to play. Did you notice anything strange at that point? Yeah, no. The event manager guy, David, introduced us with a smiling voice, and we walked on stage to our warm instruments. Like I said, a few familiar faces in the crowd, also a lot of new ones. James started the percussion, followed one bar later by Nathan's bass synth, undulating at a low moan. Rako stomped on the loop pedal and sang into it with a kind of sex kitten persona. At the high end of her range, she had it rigged with some kind of weird filter that broke up her soprano with a backwards masked staccato effect. Then I came in with a tight melodic arpeggio. Every other bar, when that repeating vocal loop came in, it filled me with greater dread, like we were being exposed to fucking radiation. Is this the vocal part that interfered with the amplitude of the hum? No, Nathan's bass drone was canceling the hum. He played it exactly like she told him. I don't know what that loop gibberish was. Maybe a communicated message of some sort. A message? I'm only guessing based on what happened next. Please continue. After nailing the intro and pre-chorus, Reiko joined in on the mic with her refined, breathy vocal for the first verse. We were swept up in the emotion of the piece, and this moment in our lives experiencing it all together. Reiko was at the edge of the stage, jumping around like an insect, already glistening with perspiration. We were the planets around her sun, playing something we knew to be brilliant to a sea of spellbound faces. It was epic. My vision of the band's success had grown over the last few months, and it was still exceeded in that moment by our reality. The piece had a synesthetic quality to it, catapulting my consciousness to a place where reality and waking dreams mixed. I swear I could see ponderous, dark planets adrift in a chaotic cosmos. The sound of Reiko's vocal was like an anchor, keeping me from drifting out into that voluptuous abyss. You were experiencing hallucinations without chemical assistance? I'm not sure they were hallucinations. By the time she ended the first verse and launched into the bridge, Reiko's feet left the stage. I mean, literally left the stage. She levitated. You probably don't believe me. I believe you. We have more cell phone footage. There are a few things we haven't shown you yet. For your protection. My protection? You've undergone a serious psychological trauma, Mr. Lee. You're also our most lucid witness to the full sequence of events. The mind does strange things to protect itself sometimes, and we aren't willing to put your mental health at risk unnecessarily. 
Then why'd you ask me to come in, give this statement, and live through this shit again? Mr. Lee, I want to protect you. I also need to do my job. You're upset. I apologize. We can stop for a while if you want to- No! I want to get this over with. Very well. So, our lead singer was floating a couple of feet above the stage. I'm staring at her like an idiot trying to spot the wires or rigging, and I heard another note that didn't come from our instruments. It was a deliberate throb that came from a point again. Impossibly, since there were no speakers there above our heads. Up there was the image of an eye floating in space above Reiko's head, focused, luminous, like a bird of prey, except huge, at least five feet across. Do, do you? We know about the eye. After that, the footage gets less reliable. Right, so the wind kicked up. The audience's hair was swept back and this weird light reflected on their faces. Reiko kept going like nothing out of the ordinary was happening. How were you able to keep playing with all this going on? I don't know. I guess I couldn't believe my own eyes. God, that sounds like such a cliché. Did the eye floating in space look like it was communicating with Reiko or any of the audience? No. It disappeared right after it detected us. Reiko's eyes were bulging. It was part of her regular manic onstage persona. Her stare was getting glassy and sightless, though. That was weird. Her voice was frantic, getting swallowed in the mix by that unearthly throbbing. Was anything happening out in the audience at that point? Yeah, two dogs that had been brought by the shaved head woman turned on each other, fighting. Picnic blankets fluttered and flew. Drinks spilled, hands covered ears, and mouths hung open in disbelief. That's when I stopped playing and looked up. The sky was a miasma of coruscating color, and there was a bizarre cold snap. There was no music except for the throb. And then from that spot above Reiko's head, that thing forced its way into our universe. What you call the slow stepper? Yes, right. It was enormous, the size of the whole stage, coiled and plump, gray in color, with no discernible eyes and four sets of limbs, each ending in claws except the forelegs, which terminated in bunches of crimson-colored tendrils. It descended to the stage, treating the air like it was fluid and viscous. And your friends? James ran to the front of the stage, pulling Reiko down, shielding her with his arms. Omar passed out. Nathan let his arms dangle and stood there, tears streaming down his face. Cosmic wind blew stronger. I staggered backstage, tripped over some cables, slamming my head against a metal folding chair. It sounded like a gong. The thing crashed into the stage and, without malice or mercy, crushed James and Reiko. There was a power surge and I was showered in hot sparks. It swam slowly into the crowd. I could barely hear the screams from the stage. Its tendrils whipped around the necks and limbs of the men and women not wise enough to run or ran too late, effortlessly popping off the heads or arms of people trying to capture this thing on their phones. It pulled the spurting, flopping bodies into its obscene, circular, tooth-lined maw. A few victims were taking flash photos with their cell phones when the creature moved into the crowd. Did it seem bothered by the flashes? Yes, it did. It went for those first. Okay, keep going. Well, I mean, I was transfixed. Terrified. My shoes were lead blocks and I couldn't breathe. When the slow stepper was far enough away, I went to Nathan and shook him by the shoulders. He didn't respond. Omar was coming too. I tried to drag him to the parking lot and he resisted, punching out at me madly until I left him alone. The slow stepper floated through the crowd, consuming the flesh of our fans and friends. That was about when the cop car rolled up. Are you referring to the black and white patrol car driven by Officer Chaddock? Right. Well, Officer Chaddock had the siren and lights on full blast when she rolled up, and that scared the shit out of the slow stepper. Did you ever wonder about the loud, high-frequency noise generated by sirens or church bells? You mean that they're loud to call attention? Sure. Maybe there's something more to it, though. Mr. Lee, I'm not doubting you, especially in light of recent events, though I think we should return to your statement. What happened to the slow stepper? It recoiled from the blaring siren and police lights. It swam, whatever you want to call it, 
back to where it had come from, above the stage, and disappeared into that rift in space she, we, had opened. Sliding behind the sky to return home, I suppose. Is there anything else you remember? Not really. The wind stopped. Officer Chaddock was telling people to clear the area and checking the wounded. I sat there with what was left of my band on the edge of the stage and waited for the EMT guys to show up. That's it. I don't think there's any more to say. Finally, another cop, a detective, came up to me and I gave him a statement. That was Detective Lehman, my partner. We have the statement. You did fine, Mr. Lee. You can stop. Unless there's anything else you wish to add. Please take your time. Look, I realize I'm not the most reliable narrator. I am a scientist, though. Sometimes we discover that things we can't imagine exist. I mean, what if there's another world around us that's invisible? Before the Industrial Revolution, there were lots of eyewitness accounts of monsters and lakes, forest, and the sea. Nowadays, there's no monsters except in remote locations like Yeti sightings in Nepal or the Bloop in the South Atlantic, always far away from civilization, far from the hum. I see what you're getting at, Mr. Lee. After seeing the evidence of this case, I suppose something like that could be possible. Well, I'm glad I told my attorney to fuck off and talk to you. I needed to get that off my chest. Only doing my job, Mr. Lee. There is one thing I still can't believe, though. How could Reiko, a genius by any measure, who had a world of potential and so much time to express herself, choose to end her life and ours? We're probably her only friends and hundreds of bystanders in the process. Maybe she only wanted to communicate with the other side and things got out of control. Maybe she was mentally unstable from the start and hid her illness from everyone until it was too late. Maybe she hated her life or all life on Earth and wanted to go out with a bang. Who knows? At least you survived and seemed to be in a state of relative mental health. Well, that's a relief. Don't sell yourself short, Mr. Lee. You've survived a unique catastrophic event. What you do with the information is up to you. Maybe you should write a song about it. I don't think so, Detective. My musician days are over. I understand. You're free to go, Mr. Lee. Thanks, Detective. One more thing. If you turn up anything interesting in your research, I hope you'll consider coming in again and talking with me. I have a brother who works in the FBI. He might be interested in what you have to say. Yeah, maybe I will. Hey, Victor, how are you doing? Hey, Josh. Hey, Daryl. Good, good. Good to see you hey. guys. So, yeah, we have a special guest with us today on this interview. We have my wife, Daryl, with us, who everyone's used to probably hearing on the beginning of the episodes. But since she read for this episode, uh, we wanted to invite her on uh, to be on here. Hello. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, Daryl, you were great. Uh, I, I it, the episode turned out way better than my wildest dreams. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was it was quite a trip um, having actors, you know, read my material. That was awesome. He called us actors. He called, yeah, <laughs> he called us actors. I, that's a all right. Well, we'll take it. Yeah, exactly. You hear that, everyone? If you're looking for people to read your book. We got the husband-wife duo here, and we can do it all at our house. Yeah, I think we guessed rightly that um, you two would have uh, a great banter and chemistry, obviously, because <laughs> you live together. <laughs> yeah, well, it was super fun to do. It was a really cool story. It was a lot of fun. I had a great time. Thanks. Yeah. I I mean, I, I haven't really done any voice acting, per se. I mean, I've... You know, in audio career, sometimes it's like sound people are like, hey, can you just like do this one line and then we can get like a sample until we find an actor, you know? So like I've done the, that <laughs> kind of temp track quite a bit, which is it happens to sound people a lot where we're just doing the temp track. Yeah. Um, and then it might end up in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think you guys did great. I mean, uh, Daryl, your your reading was just perfect. And um Oh, yeah, thank I, you. 
I also I thought it was a brilliant idea um, for a woman to to do the detective because um, you get a lot of differentiation between the voices uh, and that's what it should have. Uh, and um, yeah, that was uh, that was inspired and and uh, and honestly, Josh, I thought you did you were a better David Lee than I than I was because. Um, <laughs> You know, you you know, like all the terms that I looked up to write this story, you probably know them. So. <laughs> <laughs> you can't see my uh, desktop right now where there are about five sticky notes with phonetic spellings of all of those words. <laughs> that there were I had some to 50 cent out. words in there. <laughs> it's pretty out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think my favorite was the miasma and coruscating. Coruscating. <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote it as my asthma. Like I have, oh, my asthma. Oh, and I yeah. wrote it as coruscating, like coro skating. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. College students really do talk like that sometimes. Like, you know, when they're learning oh, yeah. new stuff. <laughs> well, I think too, like this guy is, I mean, Daryl could probably attest to this. She's been around enough audio nerd friends of mine. It's like, if we get going, like you're just, kind of like speaking in a different language. <laughs> That's exactly right. You're just kind of speaking in, in nerd audio talk. So, so, well, I mean, speaking of nerds, so <laughs> talk about the IEE, the <laughs> Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. Yeah, that's real. Um, yeah, I, I didn't know that that w that that's a real group, but they actually still exist. Um, so that's one of the parts of the story that's actually science. Yeah. So, like, um, t can you tell us like what they've studied about the hum that you know of? Like, what 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 you're what you've gathered from that when you wrote it before you wrote the book? Like, what you, I guess, what did you read before you wrote this story about the hum? Like, how much did you know about it? I have no idea. Um, I I honestly don't remember. I know that they 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 look into similar phenomena like acoustic phenomena i don't know if they've actually studied the hum um or if i did uncover something like that i don't remember what it was but um they fit perfectly in the story because um i i believe i don't i don't remember if i made up or if it's real that they have a station at, on the channel islands um, but that's what I, even though it's not mentioned by name in the story, that's what David is talking about when he's like, yeah, yeah they're re researching it off the coast right now. Okay. I mean, I, I like, the, I, I like the idea of this, you know, interesting institute being on the Channel Islands. It's kind of cool. Yeah. It just, it seemed totally like a group that Mulder would consult on an <laughs> episode of the X-Files. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So I know, Victor, every one of your stories, you kind of started off with a writing challenge. So what was the writing challenge you set for yourself with this story? Oh, yeah. It was to tell a complete narrative with only dialogue. Cool. I think you nailed that one. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, 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 it's not a mystery anymore. Uh, everybody who's read the book um, has pretty much commented that this is their favorite story so awesome. um yeah back i, I know I've, i mentioned this before but when i first got started writing short stories i talked to chuck palinuk um and uh he he was like right what however many styles however many genres you possibly can and one thing will emerge and that will be what you get known for you know so maybe this is it you know i'm definitely going to try another story this way and and see how that goes could you remind our audience again, too, of Chuck? Because I think you, we talked about him really early on back in the podcast, but maybe you could tell everyone, like, again, that might be new. Like, Oh, yeah, um, I, I just I met him at a bookstore. Because he was really important to your writing career. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I was, I was, I think I was in Seattle for about a year, and I was writing a novel, and I was very unhappy with it, and... Um, and I just, uh, you know, in one of my many breaks from that, from that experience, I read one of Chuck's books, <laughs> and uh, uh, it was Lullaby, uh, which I really liked. And and then um, coincidentally, I saw him at uh, at a bookstore, and I forget the name of the bookstore, but it's a pretty famous one. Yeah, um, and uh, he. You know, I just told him I was a fan, and I was like, "Hey, you know, like, you know, you're you're prolific. I like your stuff. 
I like your minimalist style. You know, how did you get started? And he was like, two things. He's like, get, you know, write, what I just told you, like, uh, you know, write as many genres as you can. And then the other thing is like, get a peer review group. Yeah. It took a while. It took some work. Like, eventually I was like, okay, how am I going to get my novel to somebody? Like, it's unfair to ask somebody to read a novel. It's it's so much work. And and then I was like, well, wait a minute. Why don't I just start with writing a short story? And um, man, that, that was just the missing piece that I needed because I was off and running. And then I was like, oh, I should write short stories about sound. And, um, you know, some of them could be horror. Some of them could be fantasy. Some of them could be, uh, you know, uh, science fiction. And um, uh, there you go. That's, that's pretty much what, like, I, I would say... Yeah, maybe 50% of those stories ended up being The Sound of Fear. Very cool. And speaking of your peer review group, is the Bar at the Noir one of your peer review groups? Is that one of a couple you have, or do you consider that a peer review group? Yeah, um, you know, I definitely uh, thought that uh, reaching reaching out to those guys and doing a public reading with them uh, in a genre that I wasn't terribly familiar with at the time was uh, was part of was part of following Chuck's advice. Like I was like, well, I'm gonna try noir at the bar. Uh, you know, I kind of like a couple of noir movies, and you know, maybe this will be fun. And uh, it ended up being a lot more fun than I planned. Uh, and uh, and I got into the genres. There's, there's even like two or three stories in Sound of Fear that are noir stories, like neo-noir stories. Oh, yeah. This one is, I mean, this is a detective story. I mean, it's pretty damn noir. I mean, it's, yep. y- y- you know. Yep. And I did uh, get away with reading it at Noir at the Bar. That was That was sort of my challenge for Noir at the Bar was like how, you know, what of my fantasy slash sci-fi slash horror stuff can I get away with reading in a Noir group? Um, so all that's a lot of that stuff that's in the book um, was created because I was uh, going to those meetings at Noir at the Bar at the uh, at the Alibi Room. Yeah, and I, I think the way the characters talk in the book, it just comes off naturally that way, too. Cool, cool. Thanks. So this story reminded me a lot of bands kind of making deals with the devil to get rich and famous. It reminded me a little bit of Jennifer's Body. If you've ever seen that movie, that's a very cool one. Yeah. Um, was that kind of your idea here with this story? Yeah, totally. Um, that was one of the themes... I would say that specifically it's the bad mentor um, because that uh, isn't really tackled very much. You know, most most everybody kind of has the good mentor a la, you know, Yoda. Uh, and um, <laughs> as, a matter, as a matter of fact, I saw this pretty cool Batman movie um, recently where uh, the students of a mentor go to get him back from being captured, which is a pretty cool idea. Oh, that's cool. Uh, but yeah, in my story, it's um, it's a a mentor that sort of leads some young creative people astray. Um, so that's uh, that's one of the one of the themes. And and I had to make her sort of mysterious and inscrutable. Like we don't really know why she's doing. And you know, we have David at the end saying, "Why did she?" You know, she was had such a promising future. Why did she do this? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I think all the answers are there. Like it, all the all the pieces are there, even though the detective and David don't really talk about them. But the fact that there was a school shooting right before the band got together, and then right. he ends up in this situation where he knows that something's up with Reiko and the band, but he's still like, "This is the you know the fame I always wanted, and I'm just going to go with it." And of course, it ends in tragedy, uh, and then he's just lucky to be alive. Yeah, he almost kind of ignores a lot of... Well, he does sort of act on some of the warning signs because he questions her. Yeah. More than anyone else, it seems. Yeah, totally. Like, he's the only one asking questions and gets, you know, gets shushed. And then is just, yeah, like... Correct. The, the whole, like, well, we are kind of getting famous and doing these really cool gigs, <laughs> so... I don't know. Yeah, go with it. Yeah. She might be opening a portal to hell, but... <laughs> <laughs> worth it <laughs> I mean yeah if you ask most people in a band be like so you guys could be really famous for a little bit but you're gonna open a porter to hell and it might kill some people and they're like hmm, how famous are we <laughs> do we get to do a do we get to do the nighttime talk show rally first before we uh, before this happens like do we get 
Do we get to go on uh, Saturday Night Live? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say that David David never would have agreed to have have been part of that band if he knew what she was really doing. But um, uh, isn't that really the way fame always works? Like you never really know how it's going to blow up or when uh, or or what's going to be demanded of you. And um, yeah, Daryl, you're absolutely right. There are tons of movies that uh, tack- tackle that theme. But one of my top 20 movies of all time is Phantom of the Paradise. And that s- super addresses that um, that theme in rock music, like in the 70s, um, which <laughs> a lot of people were signing some crazy contracts in those days. So it's... Ooh, uh, <laughs> I'll have to check that one out. That sounds cool. Yeah, yeah. that does sound cool. I have to watch that movie. So... There's always a Lovecraft reference. You want to uh, tell us a little bit about your, you know, the Lovecraft themes going on here? Oh the yeah, weird, uh, right? Because we get, we definitely get the weird. This is the most weird of all your stories in this book. I believe. I don't want to give anything away, but I think it kind of is the most weird, right? Yeah, you're correct. Um, yeah, the weird uh, basically takes things that are impossible. You know, uh, usually s- much more powerful than humanity has the ability to handle um, that are then placed in the real world. Uh, so that's what I tried to do with the story. I tried to set up a real world environment, a real world student's life, and then all of a sudden some cosmic stuff happens and uh, and it's real. Like it, it's, it's just him recovering from witnessing that. Uh, and um, that is very weird. Um, yeah, Lovecraft didn't invent the weird, but he popularized that term, and he's probably the most famous American writer that uh, that wrote a lot of weird stories. So, um, yeah, there's a there's a story um, that he wrote called "The Music of Eric Zahn" that is very similar, except it's you know written in the typical Lovecraft you know antiquated style i mean he was even uh, an old style when he wrote it uh so you know he was trying to be all fancy with his his literature and um uh what i did was i just made it as experimental and modern as possible but if you take all the bones like you, you know all the flesh out of the story the bones are basically the same as as lovecraft's story it's uh you know it's a guy who's playing music and um there is something being kept at bay, something cosmic and horrific that's being kept at bay. Um, I just kind of flipped it a little bit in that uh, Reiko wants to undo the um, the hum, and uh, and I thought it was uh, I thought it was fun to to say the hum, which is something that uh, a lot of people think is pretty sinister that's going on <laughs> in real life that that actually exists, um, but. Uh, I thought it would be cool if it was a government conspiracy to actually keep uh, harmful creatures out of our universe rather than welcome welcome them in. So I that's always been my favorite theory on the hum, and you're definitely not alone on that one, you know. And like, I think you and I have on sidebars have talked about where I've done enough drugs that have brought me close to where I felt I experienced the hum. Uh, some astronauts have talked about hearing it from space. You know, and there's like, part of me is like, well, is there different kinds of hum? Like, is there, is there like, you know, there's like the hum of space, there's the hum of earth. And then like, is there this generative, you know, this, or this hum that's being generated that's below our threshold. But, you know, I've been to Joshua Tree and felt really uneasy in my stomach at night in places there and that is a common side effect of really low frequencies that are below your perception you know yeah and you i'm know, really susceptible to that stuff too yeah uh and and you can definitely hear it out out in a place like that where there's not much else going on but i have i have a recording of it that somebody put on youtube you want me to play it real quick yeah yeah do it go for it all right see if you guys can hear this So yeah, it it sounds uh, disturbingly yeah. Really cool. yeah <laughs> it really sounds like a horror movie. Uh, yeah, that kind of has a has some other kind of uh, like 
higher frequencies in it than I would have expected too. Yeah, well, like you were saying, there's uh, there's different hums uh, all yeah. all over the world, and uh, yeah, you can go check it out on um, uh, Wikipedia. They I think they have a list of some of them, uh, but um, but yeah, they're pretty uh, they're pretty interesting. But um, cool. Yeah, I, so I I think yeah, Lovecraft was definitely a source. Um, also, that uh, my favorite scene in it is um, where. Uh, David starts to play the melody of Chimera and <laughs> Reiko's hand shoots out and she stops like she grabs his wrist um, and 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 then shakes her head no I, I thought that was that was yeah. uh, I totally ripped that off of um, Evil Dead 2 um, when <laughs> <laughs> like somebody does something and Ash just grabs grabs the hand and, and shakes his head he's like don't like, do that no, no. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and and you know it was partially based on my experience at college too, and you know I, you know writers, I mean they'll they'll pull anything anything from their memory for uh, from other people's memories to make the story work. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so you guys were talking about the weird, and I'm not super familiar with that. So what would you say is the difference between the weird and traditional horror, like entities that can't be killed, like Jason or Freddy? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm sure there's a, a lot of debate about where the weird starts and ends, but I think um, there's a, there is sort of a, a thematic trend in horror called the uncanny, which is sort of a half step towards the weird. And I think the the slasher movies like uh, like Halloween and Nightmare on, El- on Elm Street fall into that category because the killer resembles a human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of, uh, in a way that sort of the devil represents a human being or, or, or resembles a human being, um, but isn't, you know, but obviously they have supernatural powers. Uh, but uh, the weird is something completely inhuman. Um, I think that that's one way uh, to differentiate them. And um, and uh, yeah, I, I think that, that that's the, real, the main way I can think of, because uh, in those examples you just mentioned, they do start in the normal world, people with normal lives, and then all of a sudden there's a supernatural killer in them, and it's it's like, can they survive, you know, the onslaught? So, so I think that the the inhumanness of the killer, like I think the the thing, you know, from 1982, mm-hmm. uh, is a great example of the weird in yeah. movies. Yeah, totally. I see. I, in my head, when you're saying all that, like what came to mind was that the weird is in between. You know, the uncanny horror, like you just said, or like traditional slasher type horror and sci-fi. It's like in between those because because then it's like if it gets too alien, well, then that's just sci-fi, right? And it's like, so what was that? We were talking about it before, Color Out of Space. Like that, I guess, is like the prime example of the weird, right? Where it's like very cosmic in nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's weird. And, and it's also an example of... Uh, which which is similar to uh, a farewell concert, which is it, w- whatever the th- whatever you call the type of horror where you just have a bunch of people in a remote place and then this unstoppable cosmic horror visits them and it just gets worse and worse and worse. Like I think that the uh, you know that idea I think is is in the Carpenter movie The Thing and it's also in um, yeah uh, Colorado Space where where it's just like. It's almost like the book of Job. It's it's just like these people have been singled out because of randomness or the just the the universe's uncaring nature, uh, and it just singles out this family for destruction. Um, and there's nothing they can do. Very metal. Yeah, I definitely that 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 theme that feeling definitely uh, is at home in weird stories. And uh, yeah, it it, um, it certainly is one of the themes in my story uh because the the guy is pretty powerless to stop uh but but like you said daryl he does do more than the other band members to stop and th- and that's why he's sort of you know uh the protagonist and, th- and that's why he has sort of heroic leanings but he's also a normal guy so he's as much of a hero as i think a college student conceivably <laughs> could be yeah exactly <laughs> as long as he's not the type of college student and promising young woman um, I think he's on the better end of the spectrum being a, a naive bandmate that opened up a pit to to some other universe 
is still better than the still frat bros and promising young woman. Yep. Yeah, no, I I feel like those the, the characters, the male characters in Promising Young Woman are are almost like as much villains as a college student possibly can be. Absolutely, exactly. Being psychotic or whatever, yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, uh, it's uh, the weird is kind of a cool, it's a cool genre that um has had a, a a pretty recent rebirth. Like there's a literary movement called the New Weird now, and there's um a movie called Annihilation that uh, really encap- encapsulates the, oh, the, the new weird. Yeah, Color Out of Space did remind me a lot of Annihilation. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I, it's like I, Stranger Things, I think, really brought that back because it, I automatically just assume, like, I never really knew it was called the weird until you told me this before, and I just always knew I liked that type of movie. I had no idea what kind of... I just called it sci-fi horror because that's the closest thing I could think it was. And when I watched, like, you know, Stranger Things, it reminds me that I felt like that was a, a much more popular genre in the in the 70s and 80s. Of, of you know, there was more of that being made, maybe. And like you're saying, there's resurgence now, but I associate that genre to kind of like this 80s era for some reason. and Yeah, there were examples in the 80s, I would say. Actually, uh, Richard Stanley, the guy that uh, directed a Color Out of Space, um, did a movie called Hardware that I think is a good... Uh, it's, it's not really a cosmic movie, but it's a weird a horror, like you described, Josh. It's a slipstream um, genre movie between sci-fi and horror about a, a dude who lives in the post-apocalyptic world and he's assembling a robot for his girlfriend and the robot uh, comes to life with <laughs> horrific consequences. That sounds cool. What was that one called? Uh, hardware. Hardware. I can always, we can always get, you know, awesome movie wrecks from you because you have such a more eclectic catalog of knowledge for that than I'm just like, well, if I... Someone hasn't told me on a podcast to listen to her. If Daryl, actually, you know, Daryl kind of controls the movie queue in the house, and I just, right. she just tells me what to watch, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> She's like, you'll like this. Okay. Yes, I, I play a similar role in my house um, to to my wife's <laughs> chagrin. <laughs> uh, it's yeah. funny because I'm I'm the I'm the metalhead, and Daryl likes to remind me that like I don't, for as metal as I am, I don't like enough horror or watch enough horror. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, there, there's a lot of horror adjacent stuff that my wife Nancy's into, and I keep trying to get her. I mean, she is into some horror movies, but um, most do not uh, meet with her approval. She just tolerates them because <laughs> I do the the TV programming. Well, that's nice of her. Yeah. <laughs> At least she will. I have to watch a lot of things on my own, and then. If it's really good, I'll get I'll watch them again with Josh. I'll get him to watch it with me. But same. Usually, I'm going solo for those ones. Yeah, you know, I, there, there's some territory where I have uh, where I'm pretty sure it's going to be okay. Like last last Friday, Nancy and I watched a Vincent Price movie, and I was pretty sure that was going to be okay. You know, basically PG rated. But if it's a modern horror film, and especially if it's by somebody like uh, Eli Roth or something like that, I'll see it first. <laughs> like, I have to pre-screen yeah. it, because you never know. Yeah, <laughs> I do about it, but it's weird because, like, I do almost better with movies like Hereditary, like, really long, drawn-out, psychological shit like that, and she's like you like a lot of the found footage like you're you love jump scares i'm all for like like the teens going out for a party everything's gonna be cool like (laughs) i'm all about those ones what was the one we just we watched one that you actually it's related to this episode too so we watch block island sound if you've seen that yet no i haven't it's really good that was one i just took straight off of netflix recommendations and i it was so good and i got josh to watch it with me last night so i've seen it twice now but it's great i don't want to spoil anything but it's kind of a new take on an older concept and genre, but it's like a totally new take on it. And cool. Yeah. Cool. I, I want to check that cool. out. And it's got a sound in it. Like there's a sound that repeats, you know, when the event happens and it's a oh, really shit. cool sound. And uh, so, yeah, it, it's really, you know, it's like 
using sound is like this thing that's kind of either controlling or harnessing or keeping away the evil, you know, like, yeah. is the sound good or is the sound bad? You know, like, well, yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, that's really cool. I'm definitely going to check out that movie. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't believe we're all, all three of us are talking on uh, recording at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's cool. I, I, I had to, I had to entice her to get on this. I had to bribe her. <laughs> I, I didn't. Even, I, I thought I was gonna have to make her her drink, but she made it herself. I made my own drink. Ask this her time. what she's. Ask Victor. Ask Daryl what she's drinking. <laughs> what are you drinking today, Daryl? What I drink every weekend, Victor. <laughs> What's that? That would be Jaeger bombs. Oh, all right. <laughs> that is my drink of choice. My wife, that is thirty-seven years old, is going on uh, twenty-one in her first sorority. <laughs> I have I haven't had one of those <laughs> in quite a long time. I haven't had one of those I think since I went to see Pink Floyd oh. in <laughs> 1994, like whenever they did the Division Bell. That's Oh the, my god, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> she drinks them like a damn drink. That's hilarious. Yeah, they're so good. I I urge everyone to give it a go again. Sugar-free Red Bull. <laughs> So, you know, watch it. Watch like this, an adult. Because, you know, you're, you're watching the sugars. <laughs> I'm back to our old friend. Um, uh, the Dos Hombres is back in stock at most Ooh. liquor stores now, which, by the way, folks, if you love Mezcal and if you liked Breaking Bad, um, this Dos Hombres Mezcal is pretty damn delicious. And I have noticed that it is more places now. It didn't used to be. We don't name drop shows, uh, you know, stores on here unless they're going to pay me. But I will name drop some booze because I hope they send me some free booze. Maybe if all they of should. our listeners out there in the world can get the word out <laughs> that we're they looking should. for free alcohol for endorsements. <laughs> yeah, I, I love tequila. I have not yet uh, tried that. It's um, you have yes, you did. We we drank on the show like in the beginning. Oh, excellent! Oh, that yeah. that stuff was awesome. Yeah, yeah, this is that same stuff. I just I haven't been able to get it in forever because it was super limited where they sold it. Um, yeah, remember that was the time we drank it and we said we'll never drink before we do <laughs> <laughs> the interview. We said we would do it for the interview. That's fine, but it was you had to do your read, and I think it took you like the longest. It's you, you fuck you fucked up a lot on that one. Oh. It was really yeah. funny though. I was laughing. I didn't care, but. Yeah, I cared less about fucking up, though. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's what it's all about. And I think that one was like, I just ended up emailing you another day or something. I was like, Victor, um, if you don't mind just redoing that one at home and sending it to me, because <laughs> there's a lot of edits in here. It's, it's Please just do that gonna, one at home when you're sober, and uh, yeah, we'll call it a this day. This is like putting together Lars's drum tracks on um, <laughs> the Black Album. Oh, I said yeah. that. I've seen pictures of the Pro Tools session, so I know what it looked like. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool yeah um i've I, i've been waiting to uh to to drink after the interview is over because uh i always get nervous before before these interviews even though we, like we know each other really well now uh i always get nervous before i'm recorded so um yeah but afterwards then it's on friday night yeah it's natural i i i mean I guess it'd be funny if i said i had stage fright with recording <laughs> you'd be like well how the hell did you do your job yeah, a lot of people do. I mean, even, you know, the stage, just regular stage performers get it. Um, not all of them, but some of them do. Um, yeah. I am not a regular stage performer, and I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, stage, for, especially when you get it, like it's something like Noir at the Bar, when you get up in front of people live and you do... Uh, doing a reading or if you're if you're just talking as yourself they're two kind of two different things um but uh facing a live crowd is really terrifying for most people including me and um it's something that you you do get better at it you do get better at managing the stress over time but um it's primal uh, how uh weird it feels and um i think it, it's just about uh, facing your peers like you're sort of on trial and when you're reading <laughs> uh, when you're reading something that you wrote uh, that or, or singing a song that you wrote or, or whatever um, it, it's it, it's even worse because you're kind of putting your heart on your sleeve yeah. 
like saying, this is the stuff that I think is really cool. Do you guys like it? You know, <laughs> it's, it's pretty intense. But, um, but I always get really nervous before. Then once it starts, I'm generally okay. You know, I, I start to calm down. And then after it's over, I'm super wired unless I have alcohol to calm down. Like I, I'll be wired for hours unless I have a drink. It's like the performance afterglow. Yeah. Yeah. Like, totally. Well, um, dude, it's been great talking to you. Likewise. Thank you, Daryl, for being here. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you, Daryl, for doing our podcast. <laughs> we so appreciate it. Thank you for always reading our intro so well. Thank you. All right. Well, everyone, thanks for listening. And we will see you next time on Love's Hard Edge. Love's Hard Edge.